morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. It is good to see you guys. Well, some of us are awake. It's good to see you guys this morning. I am so excited to be able to jump into the Word with y'all. For those of you who don't know, my name is Seth. Uh, I have the unspeakable privilege of working with the youth here at Free Money Free, greatest job on the planet. Um, And I am so excited to be able to go through the Word this morning. Uh, Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. Uh, But I think in Acts chapter 1, we have a good kind of overview of the book of Acts as a whole. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is about to ascend back up into heaven. Um, And before he goes, he tells his disciples this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what follows in Acts chapters 1 through 12 is the spread of the gospel through those first three regions, okay? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And it focuses primarily on the Holy Spirit's work through the Apostle Peter. And by the time we get to chapter 13, we see God beginning to address that final region, the ends of the earth. And it turns a focus from the Holy Spirit's work through Peter to the Holy Spirit's work through Paul. And at this point in the book of Acts, we followed Paul through two missionary journeys, all right? Uh, The first one went to the island of Cyprus and then up into Galatia before he returned to Antioch. And then the second missionary journey uh, saw him going up into Cilicia, up into Achaia, down to where Philippi is at, then down again to Corinth before coming back. And he touched briefly at Ephesus in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 through 20. They wanted him to stay a little while longer, and he says, if the Lord wills, I will return, right? And what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 19 is as Paul is embarking on his third missionary journey, he's headed straight back to Ephesus to continue to uh, proclaim the gospel and build up the church in that region. So the timeline is around 53 AD, and this is roughly 20 years after Jesus' ascension. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into the word of the Lord together. God, you are a great God. Lord, you are truly worthy of of every breath that we have to breathe. God, you are worthy, um, Lord, of every fiber of our being, every effort, uh, every, every little ounce of energy that we have, Lord, to live for you, to love you, to serve you. God, we're in danger this morning of coming here this morning and just sitting down and having your word just go over our heads and leave us in the same place that we've been. Lord, would you soften our hearts? God, would you give us ears to hear Would you give us eyes to see? Holy Spirit, would you teach us this morning? Without you, we can't comprehend spiritual truth. We need you to guide us and to teach us and to build up your church this morning. Lord, we're here. We're hungry for your word. Lord, we're ready to know you and to be changed by you more into your likeness. So God, would you help me get out of the way? And Lord, would you proclaim your word to your people? You are a great and holy God, and we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. Oh, Jesus, please guide us in this time, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. I want to encourage you guys to stand for the reading of Scripture this morning. The reason we stand is to recognize the authority behind the word that we're reading. This is God's word. I'll have the words on screen. You can follow along in your Bibles as well. We're in Acts chapter 19, going through verses 1 through 20. This is what it says. Micah, if you want to click on the PowerPoint for me. There we go. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, 
did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as we go through the word this morning, there is one main point that I want us to see that I believe is the point of the text. And that is this. God is reaching Ephesus through the power of his spirit and the proclamation of his word. God is reaching Ephesus through the power of his spirit and the proclamation of his word. And we're going to see this unfold in two phases. Phase number one is he reaches those who are near, verses one through nine. And phase number two is he reaches those who are far in verses 10 through 20. So let's tackle the first part, reaching those who are near, verses one through nine. All right, as we, as we uh, come to verse 1, we find that Paul is traversing the countryside, and he comes to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a city in Asia Minor that is along the eastern coast of the Aegean Sea. It was a wealthy port city and a major one uh, in Asia. It was an important center of trade, and it boasted the largest amphitheater in the world, seating somewhere around 50,000 people. It was also a polytheistic culture that boasted the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You guys are going to hear a little bit more about this next week, right? Uh, when we get into uh, some Artemis worship that they're talking about. Again, this is a society that believes in numerous, numerous gods. We also learned that Ephesus was a city that had a heavy emphasis on magic. They were a culture that was kind of obsessed with magic, believing that there were spells that you could cast on your enemies, that you could have these amulets that would give you blessing, right? That there were these mystical words of power um, that you could utilize to bless your life and to curse your enemies. They were, their culture was very much 
consumed with it, and they were kind of a hub for a quote-unquote magical activity. And so what I want us to see from the very get-go as we dive into this passage is that this Gentile city is a stronghold of the enemy, okay? The gospel has barely been here just a little bit. You have they, Paul dropped by briefly to share the gospel, but by and large, the enemy has sway over this city. He has taken people hostage, holding them captive to his will here. And the vast majority of the city does not know the Lord. They don't know him. And so what we see here is God is coming to save his people. And guys, I want us to hear this, because here's the truth. If you're anything like me, you've grown up in the church, right? You've heard about salvation from the time you're a little kid, and you're like, great. Jesus saves, that's awesome. But do we recognize where we were before we knew Christ? Do we recognize who we are apart from him? Because without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Without hope, without God in the world. If you don't have Christ, <clears throat> the only expectation you have is an eternity of eternal damnation separated from him. We desperately, desperately need God. And by his grace, he has moved in our lives, drawing us to the truth, opening up our eyes to the glory of who he is, so that we've turned from our life to sin and have been born again into a new life, having fellowship with God, adopted into his family. This is beautiful, and this is the deepest need in the world around us. And as Paul is coming to Ephesus, he's finding a whole system, a whole city that is enslaved to the enemy. And God is bringing his salvation to save his people in this place. Praise the Lord. So, what we, where we see is when we come to uh, verse 1, that Paul ends up finding these 12 men who are described as disciples. And we see in verse 2, they're described as men who have believed, okay? These are men that we would consider near, okay? These are guys who are close uh, to being believers in Jesus Christ. They're close to being saved. And honestly, it kind of reminds me of a story of a time when I was in Eastern Africa. So, this is a bus stop <coughs> in Uganda. Um, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Cold sinus stuff. Uh, so, when I was on the world race, uh, we spent a month in Kenya, and our next month was going to be in Uganda. And while I was in Kenya, we were getting ready to head on over to the next place. We reached on over to our contact. Hey, where do we need to go to be able to get to your, the place where you guys want us to be? Uh, there were about 30 of us, and they were like, um, you need to catch a plane from Nairobi to Kampala, and then a bus over to Embarara, Uganda, and I'll send one of my buddies, we don't know who, and he will meet you there at the bus station and take you to where you need to go. So we're like, great. So we did what he said, jumped on the plane, flew over to Uganda, caught a bus, went on over into, uh, Camp, uh, went on over into Embarara, Uganda, and we we're chilling at a bus stop that looked a lot like this, okay? Uh, they are like, buzzards flying around overhead there's a lot of business and 30 white people just stick out like a sore thumb in a place like this and we had 24 girls and six guys which did not make me feel any more comfortable about the situation and we were sitting there for my goodness probably about five hours we were sitting there for a long time waiting for this friend of our contact we didn't know who he was for him but for him to come and find us and to take us to our next location the sun is starting to go down and we're still here most of the people have left the bus station at this point and th the sun is literally setting and i'm thinking are we gonna have to spend the night at this bus stop waiting for our contact friend to come grab us this is insane some of us are gonna get murdered some of us are gonna get robbed 
what in the world is going to happen here? And then literally just before it was completely dark, our contact's friend showed up. He had a whole bunch of buses, or not buses, vans, and we all ended up jumping in the vans and going to our contact's home, which, believe it or not, was within an hour of where we were at. We were not far from it at all. And so anyways, it was, it was a situation that had me super stressed out, but God got us to where he wanted us to go. The truth is we were close to where we needed to be physically, right? We had flown in from Nairobi to Kampala. We're in Embarara. We're within an hour of where we need to be, and we're waiting for someone. We don't know who to come and take us the rest of the way to where we needed to be. In the same way, these men were close. They had believed the message of John the Baptist. They had repented of their sins, and they were waiting for the one who had baptized them with the Holy Spirit, right? They seemingly just didn't know who he was. They had turned from their sins, but they had yet to place their faith in Christ. And Paul seems to catch on to their lack of the Spirit and their lack of understanding. We read this in verses 2 through 4. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. So just as Priscilla and Aquila pulled aside Apollos in Acts chapter 18 to further unpack the gospel for them, to tell them who Jesus is, so we see that Paul, a man full of the Holy Spirit, is talking to these 12 disciples and pointing them to the living word of God, that John the Baptist was pointing to Christ, that we should believe in him. And what was the result? Verses 5 through 7. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. These were about 12 men in all. Praise God. He is going and he is finding those who are near, those who are close to understanding the gospel. He's taking the gospel to them and he's saving these men, drawing them to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a little bit of a danger that comes with this passage that I've bumped into before, and that is that some charismatic theologians would like to argue that what we see here is a regularly occurring instance of people who have believed in Jesus but haven't received the Holy Spirit, that is, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that when a person does receive the Spirit, that's when they speak in tongues and prophesy. However, I believe this is misleading for a number of reasons. Number one, everyone who believes in Jesus is sealed with the Holy Spirit at the moment of their salvation. Ephesians 1.13. Under the new covenant, if you do not have the Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. The Holy Spirit is the seal of the covenant that is by faith. Reason number two, the fact that Paul explains Jesus to them as the fulfillment of John's ministry shows that they didn't understand who Jesus was. And how can you place your faith in Jesus if you don't know who he is? This is the same reason why we try and share the gospel with Muslims, why we try and share the gospel with Jews, why we try and share the gospel with atheists who have some knowledge about God, but they don't know who he is. Because if you don't recognize that he's God's son and the only propitiating sacrifice for our sin, why would you place your faith in him? And finally, number three, we see that not everyone who is saved in the book of Acts speaks in tongues and prophesies at their conversion. We have no record of this for the Ethiopian eunuch. We have no record of this for Saul. He did not speak in tongues and prophesy at his conversion that we have any record of. 
We do not see this with Sergius Paulus, with Lydia, with the Philippian jailer, or with Apollos. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 29 through 30 would suggest that not all received the gift of tongues. And so as such, we need to discard the idea that there are these two phases of salvation under the new covenant. That first you believe in Christ, and then after that, then sometime later on you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. The, the moment you put your faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. But I want us to recognize also that what happens here is so pivotal. Because God is establishing his church in Ephesus through the power of his word and his spirit. I want you guys to hear this. It is not enough to have morally upstanding men lead the church. Okay? That will not build up God's church. Okay? God did not come to make good men better. He came to make dead men alive. And if God is going to build his church, it is only when his people are following his word, when they are filled with his spirit and are spiritually ministering to each other, because only God can build his church. And right here from the very beginning, we see the word of God being proclaimed as Paul is proclaiming the gospel to these disciples, and we see the Holy Spirit coming upon them and filling them so that they can know the truth and effectively serve the body that is around them. God, from the very beginning here, is, is using the word and the spirit to build up his church. This is how he moved 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. This is how he still builds his church today. And what I love is that God isn't limiting his salvation to these 12. He ends up, he ends up having Paul go to the local synagogue. This is pretty normal for Paul, where he sees some success for a while. Verses 8 through 9, and he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. All right, so the Jews of all people were people who we would consider near the truth, right? They had the old covenant. They had the scriptures. They had messianic prophecy talking about the Messiah who would come right uh, of everyone who should have believed in jesus and gotten it it was the jews and yet here we see that they reject jesus as messiah and in doing so they're rejecting the father and so paul begins to take the gospel to those we would consider further from god a magic obsessed polytheistic gentile populace and that moves to the second phase of what we're going to be seeing here in this passage is god reaches those who are far all right, in verse 9, we see Paul moving from reasoning in the synagogue to teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. And what we see from this is, I, I read uh, from uh, Bible commentator Daryl Bach, is that this school of Tyrannus was likely a lecture hall or a school building that was named after either the primary lecturer or uh, the owner of the building itself. If it was a lecture, it'd be rather humorous because this would infer that his students probably referred to him as Tyrannus, which is where we get the word today, tyrant, Okay. Nonetheless, this is the platform from which Paul is beginning to proclaim the word of God, and it is going forth in a powerful way. Verse 10, Paul continued to teach here for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God is using this space to send out his word into this entire surrounding area of Asia. Because remember, Ephesus is a trade city. It's a port city. So people are coming into the city to do business, right? They're hearing the good news as, as, they, as they come into contact with believers or as they go to the school of Tyrannus. Many of them are believing, and then they're going back to the towns where they came from. 
And so as he's doing this for two years, people are coming and people are going, and the word of God is just spreading throughout the region. Is God strategic? Yes, he is. Does God know what he's doing? Yes, he does. And he is furthering his word in this passage. And interestingly enough, God is also vindicating the proclamation of his word in powerful ways. Look at verses 11 through 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Just like Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, even worldly magicians are beginning to recognize the power and the authority behind the word of God that's being proclaimed and the name behind it, the name of the Lord Jesus and the spirit that's working through it. But instead of repenting and believing the gospel, some of these Jewish exorcists are trying to utilize the name of Jesus like a lucky charm to cast out demons, perhaps to make a profit for themselves, right? They're not repenting and believing in itself. All right, it's, and as we're going to see in this passage, these are seven sons of Sceva who are trying to do this. Now, you guys are thinking at this point, okay, Seth, are, are, are we going to honestly be talking about angels and demons? And the answer is yes, okay? Why? The passage talks about demons. Look, angels and demons are an explicitly biblical concept. Demons were once angels who dwelt in the presence of God, but who followed Satan and rebelled against him, right? Since then, they have been cast to the earth, and like Satan... They're wandering to and fro on the earth, seeking those whom they may devour. They hate God. They want nothing to do with him. They don't want people to worship him. We struggle enough to rebel against God in our own flesh, and, and, and the devil and his demons are trying to pull people away from believing in him, from trusting in him. They're at work in the world today. Angels live as well. It's kind of freaky to think about, but right now there are probably angels in our presence in this room, okay? It is real. Spiritual warfare is real. God is using his angels. He's waging war to bring his people unto salvation, and the enemy is trying to turn them away. He's trying to deceive them, to keep them in their flesh so that they won't turn to the true and living God. And I want to share a modern-day example of demonic activity to help us catch a better picture of what we might be seeing happening here in the passage. Okay? And this story is one of Latoya Amons, who lived with her kids in a home in Gary, Indiana. So I have, an art, I have a quote here from an article by the Indy Star, written by Sarah Barr. It says this, Amons claimed that she and her three young children had been possessed by spirits inside this rental home, which you see on the screen, from 2011 to 2012. The Gary Police Department and the Indiana Department of Child Services investigated a priest performed exorcisms, and even some of the biggest skeptics were made into believers. So this family allegedly experienced their kids being demon-possessed, having, seeing their eyes roll in the back of their head, having them talk in voices that were not their own, and, and trying to kill each other. Maybe that's not uncommon in your home. It would be a little bit in ours, all right? Um, they were, at one point, they had family over and reported seeing one of their kids levitating above their bed. They would have cabinets and doors randomly slam open and slam shut. They would hear footsteps going up and down the stores and their uh, up and down the stairs in their basement, along with other paranormal activity. In one instance, a Department of Child Services case manager and a registered nurse, while investigating the potential situation for child abuse or neglect at the home, witnessed one of the children walk backwards up a wall and onto the ceiling, and then flip down in front of them. To, uh, to quote the article, he walked up the wall, flipped over her, and stood there, said the nurse. 
There's no way he could have done that. Later, police asked Washington whether the boy had run up the wall as though performing an acrobatic trick. No, Washington told them. The boy glided backward on the floor, wall, and ceiling, according to a police report. Police officers also visited the home and took pictures, and upon examination of these photos, reported strange cloudy silhouettes that, upon zooming in, resembled people and faces. I mean, you start to look into this situation that they're dealing with here, and it is crazy. And the reason I share this is I want you guys to recognize Scripture is true. Demons live. Spiritual warfare is raging on earth for the souls of men. And what we see here in verse 13 is we find seven sons of Sceva entering into a situation like this where they are attempting to exercise the demon by proclaiming, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And what we're going to see here is the power of the spirit contrasted with the impotency of their spells. Verses 15 through 16. After they say this, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded, right? What we're seeing here is seven magicians who recognize the power of God are trying to utilize the name of God to cast out demons, and they are unable to do so. Seven guys of priestly descent, whatever that would have meant to them, with all their combined might and their combined magical incantations are incapable of driving out a demon that God can drive out by using a handkerchief. Do you see that? And when these demons reply to these seven sons of Sceva, they recognize the Lord. They, see, they say, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? You see, these demons fear the Lord, and they can't withstand the power of his might. There is more power that has touched a servant of the Lord in a handkerchief than there are in seven magicians trying to cast spells on them. But worldly magicians, demons don't acknowledge them, and as such, they can't withstand the power of demons. And what was the effect of this, what happened? Verse 17, as this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Because they're recognizing where true power comes from. Do you guys know the difference between a toy gun and a real gun? A toy gun you run around with your friends and you say, bang, Joey, you're dead. A real gun... You pull the trigger, it goes bang and punches a hole through the wall. All right? A real gun has power. And what the people are seeing here is that magic is a toy gun, and the Spirit of God is the real gun. The Spirit of God has power to heal sickness, to drive out demons, and people are coming to repent of their sins and see the reality of who God is. And as a result, the name of the Lord is being extolled. As a result of this demonic encounter, people are repenting of their magic. They're repenting of believing in these demonic lies, and they are turning to the living God. Verses 18 through 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. People are here recognizing the truth. That true spiritual life and power are not bound up in secret spell books or in mystical powers of word. Rather, they are bound up in the spirit of the living God in the power of his word. 
and so they burned their book, books of magic. 50,000 pieces of silver is estimated to be roughly 50,000 days' wages, which the ESV study Bible estimates in today's currency would be about $6 million, okay? This is a vast sum of money, but instead of propagating these lies by selling it to other people, they decided to throw it all into a pile and to burn it. And I want you guys to see, this is awesome. Our God is a warrior. He is coming to Ephesus on a search and rescue mission to come and find his people who are in chains, who are in bondage to the enemy. He is enlightening their understanding them. He's enlightening their understanding. He's helping them see who the true and living God is. Who has true power? Where true authority comes from? Who has the true word of God? And he's using it to set them free. Using it to raise dead people to life, to turn them to him. This should draw our hearts to worship God. We serve a great God. He is working 2,000 years ago, saving people in Ephesus, and he is still at work today. And he does it through the power of his spirit and the proclamation of his word. God even uses the work of the enemy to bring about repentance and faith. He's turning people from demonic delusions to believe in the true and living God. He's even working through the physical abuse of demons to further proclaim his name. Our God is an awesome God. And so just to reiterate the main point, I want us to see this from today's text. God is reaching Ephesus through the power of his spirit and the proclamation of his word. We've seen this as he reaches those who are near and he reaches those who are far. And so in application, it becomes pretty self-evident at this point. For the non-believer, I want you to hear this. For the non-believer, repent and believe in God. Jesus Christ truly is the living Son of God, and there is salvation in no other name. If you have not turned from your life of sin and put your faith in Him to love and to follow Him, I want to urge you to do so. His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. His righteousness that He gives you is real, that you are now vindicated in His sight, and you're adopted into the family of God. If you have not done that, repent and believe the good news. But if you are a believer this morning, I want you guys to be grounded in God's word. God's church is built on nothing less. And if we are to spiritually build each other up, encourage each other in the faith, and go and reach those who don't know God, we have to be a people who are grounded in the word of God. And then when was the last time you unpacked God's word on your own, on your own at home? When was the last time you dove in and you said, God, I'm hungry, feed me, teach me, lead me. I want to know you more. This is the spiritual sustenance of the believer. And if you are not grounded in God's word, you're going to be spiritually anemic. Secondly, I want us to be a people who are relying upon God's spirit. Okay? Because here's the truth. Even the Pharisees had the word of God. The Pharisees had the word of God. Jesus' disciples, when we find him in Acts chapter 1, they had the word of God. And yet, what did God call them to do? Wait until the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses, okay? We can't build the church on words of human wisdom. I cannot build the church in my flesh. It is insufficient. Only God's spirit can build his church. And if we are going to reach the lost, if we are going to be built up in our walk with the Lord, if we're going to see the church built up, it's going to be when we are a people who are grounded in his word and reliant upon his spirit. We need to come to God and be like, God, I need you to teach me. Holy Spirit, I need you to fill me. I'm struggling to love my brother right now. He's being really annoying. God, fill me with your spirit to love him well. 
give me the words to say as I try and talk to this non-believer. Because if we don't have the Spirit's empowering work, we're going to be ineffective. We need Him. We need to be grounded in God's Word. We need to be relying upon His Spirit to lead us. And then we need to share the gospel with those near and far. We need to share the gospel with those that are people who are like, they are this close to getting it. And those people that were just like, that is the last person that God would save, right? We need to carry the gospel to them all, to those who are near and those who are far. And then stand in awe as God works through us and through this church to proclaim his name and draw his people into his kingdom. We can't do it on our own strength, but God has equipped us with everything that we need in him to go out and to be a light in this dark world. Let me close this out in a word of prayer. God, you are so good. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you are a warrior who fights for your people. God, you are jealous for your bride. You are a protective father. And God, you won't, you won't rest until you brought every last one of your kids home. Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. Oh, Lord, would we be a people who are grounded in your word and reliant upon your spirit. And as your spirit fills us with your love, Lord, would you grant us the boldness and the words to go out and to proclaim your gospel to those around us who don't know you. Oh, God, we need you. We thank you for all that you are. We ask that you would guide us as we go throughout this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.